Welcome to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm Jeff Steppen, male speech pathologist. Well, it's May 2020, and as I record this, uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic. It's the age of COVID-19, and I hope all of you are healthy and safe in this bewildering time. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome an individual whom I have admired from afar for some time now, and her name is Linda D'Onofrio. She is an SLP in Portland, Oregon, who is big on oral myofunctional disorders. Before we get into that conversation with Linda, I'd like to get a few pieces of housekeeping out of the way. First, uh, for those of you not familiar, and I'm guessing that's most of you, you probably are not subscribed to the show anymore. So if you were previously subscribed, I'm guessing you are no longer subscribed. That's because Apple delisted my podcast. Um, this is like going back a couple of months ago. And uh, basically, I had to work out some technical issues. When I got it back up, I found every single one of my ratings was gone. It was basically being treated as a new podcast, a new podcast on the iTunes store, the podcast section. So if you want to resubscribe, if you think you already subscribed, uh, check that feed and uh, make sure you are. Uh, you're probably going to have to do so again in Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever else my podcast is uh, listed. So go ahead and resubscribe. And then the other thing, of course, is that I lost every single one of my ratings um, in the podcast section on Apple and probably, again, in Stitch and all the other places. So if you've never rated this this uh, podcast before, and uh, I'd appreciate if you just go ahead and give an honest review in uh, the podcast section of Apple, wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Okay, now the fun stuff. For those of you new to the show, you're likely to not fully appreciate where I'm coming from in this episode. So here is a very brief summary. I'm going to try and keep this short. Uh, about six years ago, I did an episode on non-speech oil motor exercises. And at the time, I wasn't necessarily passionate about the subject. I wanted to cover it because it's been such a contentious issue for such a long time. And at the time, I was leaning on the side of a skeptic. And after that initial uh, interview, I subsequently was introduced to Robin Walsh of Talk Tools and asked to have her on the show to kind of explain the other side. Now, since that time, I have slowly made my way from reluctant skeptic, I would say, to a slow and still, still somewhat reluctant learner to now what I would say is a believer in this larger project that Robin and her colleagues have been engaged in for forever. So <laughs> note that um, I am a believer in what whatever you want to call it, oral motor therapy, oral placement therapy, oral myofunctional disorders, it's all good in my opinion. Um, does that mean I subscribe to everything anyone's ever said about the subject? No, we all have to make those good judgments, whether you're learning about voice, phonological disorders, or anything else in speech pathology. It just means that I'm open to uh, the ideas and have seen another side uh, of speech pathology that... I really haven't given uh, its its due. So uh, you'll hear that today in the conversation. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cheat and just read what is on Linda D'Onofrio's main page of her website. I think it makes a good introduction. Linda D'Onofrio has a private practice in Portland, Oregon, focusing in craniofacial disorders, oral myofunctional disorders, dysphagia, and sensory motor speech disorders. 
She completed her master's at the University of Oregon, her medical externship at the Oregon Health Sciences University Medical Center, with a focus on inpatient neurological acute care and outpatient cognitive rehabilitation, and her clinical fellowship at the Oregon VA Medical Center with a focus on dysphagia, aphasia, brain injury, and cancer. She is a past president of the Oregon Speech-Language Hearing Association, and she presents internationally on craniofacial development and function. As we start the podcast, Linda and I are discussing our experiences with teletherapy in the age of the pandemic. Um, And also halfway through, you're going to hear a slight interruption. Linda's AirPods gave out and she had to resort to using the internal microphone, I believe, on her computer. Okay, here we go. So what, what platform do you use then for therapy? What do you well, recommend? teletherapy is is truly uh, not my jam. Mm-hmm. I can't palpate inside a mouth if I can't palpate inside a mouth. I can't hear you breathe if we're not next to each other. I can watch you eat, but I can't appreciate the experience you're having when you eat unless we're together. So um, the world's a new place and I'm trying to adjust to it. But teletherapy isn't uh, ideal for me. I prefer it with follow-up patients that I know very well mm-hmm. and that know me very well. But I am learning to do initial evaluations. Fortunately, I work with a lot of medical and dental providers. So my parents are dentists themselves or they're yeah. surgeons. So I'm able like, okay, I can't see inside your child's mouth, but I know you can. Ah. So, and so I'm trying to have a, a better picture because I, you know, I make guesses when I meet somebody, yeah. I make a lot of guesses about what's happening inside based on what I see outside. Yeah. And uh, the rest I do with my hands. So yeah, there we go. Yeah. You know, so. I've actually, I'm kind of laughing in this age of teletherapy because it really does, you know, for my VR tick kids that I work with, it really does. Um, you, you're really defaulting to look at me, look at me, watch me, and you can't really do anything else. And so, for the people like me who are starting to do non-speech oral motor exercises, <laughs> don't say that because that's not what you're doing. That's not what you're doing. Actually, what you're doing is going back to some foundational stability. That's what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and there was a test a long time ago. It's not around a lot anymore. The VIMPAC. Do you remember that one? I've heard of Verbal it. Verbal motor production assessment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do this thing I'm telling you intellectually to do is basically level one. Okay. Okay. Look at me and do what I do was level two. Okay, let me get my hands on you and see if I can make you do this thing was kind of the level three. And it was a differential. It was a criterion reference differential test for dysarthria and dyspraxia. And it was just really great. I loved working using it with people post brain injury because you could really measure their breakdowns in this great way based on the cue they needed. Mm -hmm. And what you're finding out in teletherapy is when they can't do that cue, I cannot get to you and I can't put my hands on you and I can't support you. And I can't even make sure you're sitting up straight in your chair, young man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind and of at a... as your mouth posture starts in your feet. Mm. Yeah. Seriously. 
Yeah. So sit up straight for me because I'm in. I'm in a lazy boy. I'm not going to do it. You look like you have. You have half a chance. <laughs> I have half a chance foot, today. <laughs> okay, if you were an infant and I was feeding you, I put a foot plate on you to make sure that your jaw was stable. Mm. I wouldn't feed you with dangly feet as a speech pathologist. Flopping around. That's a bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. So will the jaw. Okay. Well, this your, is this is a really good segue. Starts in your feet. Yeah. Let's start. <laughs> okay. So I want to tell you, I you came on my radar about three years ago, I want to say. Um, I think it was in, in a conversation with Robin Walsh. And I followed you over the last few years. I've taken a couple, two or three of your courses on speech therapy PD. And the thing, I've, you know, I've, I'm on your Facebook group. And I've, I think I've learned a lot about you through comments here and there, through what you've talked about. But here's what I don't know when I'm dying to find out is how did you, like, what is your history? How did you become so interested in oral myofunctional disorders? Like, where did the, where did this journey begin? I don't think you've ever talked about it on Facebook that I, that I've known. There's some, there's at least one story, maybe two, but they're deep in the timeline. Okay. I did my, uh, graduate, uh, uh, my master's at university of Oregon but I lived in Portland and I knew I was moving home. I was going to start, I was finishing a medical externship at OHSU and I was going to start my clinical fellowship at the VA Medical Center back in Portland. And I'm looking for a job. And someone said, oh, I know a speech pathologist named Joanne Smith-Peter who's looking for office help. And I had been many things prior to a speech pathologist and that was one of them. And she says, oh, my specialty is, uh, um, oral, wait, because we do, she's an oral facial myologist. She said, my specialty is oral facial myology. And I'm literally filling out all my bubbles to graduate from college. And I'm like, a da <laughs> And she goes, yeah. She goes, don't you know about this? And I'm like, I, I'm literally doing this matrix. And I don't know what you're talking about because I've done every valid treatment on everything. Because uh, University of Oregon had a early intervention track, a school track and an adult clinical track. I took all three plus all the work for a PhD. I called it the paranoid track and I didn't know what she was talking about. And I said, well, I got to come work for you. This sounds like fun. And, um, she was doing this crazy stuff that I had been told never do. Mm-hmm. And I started doing it at the VA and I started doing it with my brain injury patients and my post-stroke patients and my post-cancer patients. And, my stutterers and, and, uh, I was, I was crushing it and, uh, it was fun. And then I started picking up cleft palate kids because I wanted to be hardcore, uh, uh, medical. And I, I definitely want, I wanted to be on the cleft palate team, mm-hmm. but the cleft palate team where I live is a little bit like Downton Abbey. Um, <laughs> the only time there's turnover is, you know, yeah. uh, so, um, And so, and and thank goodness, there's not enough cleft palate children in my world to keep my caseload busy, but that's what I wanted was this really complex structural and and neuromuscular experience. First time I ever saw a little kid with an anterior open bite, I couldn't stop laughing at how easy this one was going to be. And it was, it shut in like half a year. And I thought, cool. And um, this was really impactful with some of my special needs kids. And there were other things that I used besides this. I mean, uh, Robin Walsh is a good example. Talk tools and, and the things that, that support 
um, feeding and oral function, when you see this work with a special needs population like a Down syndrome child or a child with cerebral palsy or a kid in a wheelchair, and then you see some normal kid who's just a little canted, you're like, oh, I got this. Mm. Okay. It's not an ensemble. It's how you breathe. Mm-hmm. It's how you swallow and how you chew. And if you, if all of that fits together properly, your speech should sound perfectly fine. That, you know, I have to say that more than anyone else that I've, that I've read uh, about, you, you really drive home this idea of structure. I, I haven't heard anybody quite, and it actually, when I first uh, you know, glommed onto this, I, my first thought was, is this at odds in a way with what some of the oral, other oral motor practitioners are, are doing? Or, because I almost got the impression, like you were talking, you know, if you, for instance, you have a kid, let's say you have like a four-year-old uh, Down syndrome kid with a, a vaulted palate open mouth, you know, mouth breathing, all the, you know, I almost got the impression when I was first learning things that you were saying that you almost like don't touch them until that breathing is taken care of. Work on the breathing first. And, you know, and then I sort of came around, like, I think what the message eventually that I got was you really need to address everything at the same time, but really put that, that structure at, at the foundation of everything that you do. Because the, the very, I'm telling you the very interesting thing, I, I wrote this down. You said, um, I went back and you looked at it. You nailed it. You're nailing it. Yeah. You, you talked about, <laughs> this is what you said in one of your uh, presentations. You said, most SLPs or parents try to change behavior first. And then when that doesn't work, they go to muscle function. And then when that doesn't work, you finally go ahead and say, okay, what's going on here structurally when in fact, that's where you're beginning. I'm getting this right? That's, I was so fortunate to work with such obvious cranial dysmorphology from the get-go. I was so fortunate to work with, I mean, I, I, on that, I, honestly, I'll never forget one of my first days in medical externship at OHSU. I worked with a 16-year-old boy the second day after he turned 16 because the first day he turned 16, his father gave him a motorcycle. <laughs> I met him on day two after a hemispherectomy because he crashed it and gave himself the most severe brain injury you could imagine, they took out half of his brain. Mm. What a privilege it was for me to walk him through part of that process. I Everything after that felt simple. Everything for everybody. I have been so fortunate to work with veterans who've been hit in the... F I had a, a gentleman, Iowa, I've got his medical history... He fell off a cliff. He got hit in the face with a rifle butt. He'd been electroshocked, not electrocuted because he didn't die. But I mean, everything, I mean, his face was a jigsaw puzzle of what happened to you, dude. He came to me for sleep apnea. So um, I'm so grateful for, for the structural things that were presented to me so early on. And I say this very gently. If you had a child with an obvious unrepaired cleft palate in front of you, how could you not start with structure first? Yeah, when it's staring you at the face. It, yeah. When it's staring you in the face. But that's what a high narrow palate is if the kid can't reach. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the two? If you yeah. can't touch it, it's the same experience functionally. Yeah, and I, I have to say, like, you're – 
I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but um, hearing, he, hearing you, yeah, so I, <laughs> hearing you speak, it just, I have to say, like, I, I'm, I might be speaking, I'm probably am speaking for a lot of SLPs out there where the more I learn from people like you and Robin Walsh, the more I'm like, oh God, how many years have I been messing this up? Not that I haven't had successes with kids. I'm like, it's not that, but no, because there's different things going on. And exactly. SLPs are so varied in our talent. We're so varied in what we're able to address. I can work on play at the same time that I work on textures. I can work on family dynamics while I'm working on social skills. What a privilege. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But when you're not successful, it might be that thing you didn't learn. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I think that's, I, I say this my whole career, people think, you know, I've been doing this podcast that I'm like, there's such a gung-ho SLP that I, and, and it's almost like a half truth because the other half of it is I, I have, I, I work in a life skills program. I have these kids with special needs and I'm, I say for the last 10 years, I'm just been like certain kids that I have, I'm like, oh, I, you, you feel awful when you can't make a difference. You know, and then you're like, okay, do I not work on speech? Do I work on language? And this gets into a whole other conversation I want to have with you about my role in the schools. Because uh, I know oh, you geez. have a, yeah. You but anyway, yeah. But, but at any rate, you know, some, you know, again, here's another statement you've said uh, at least a few times. If you have to work on more than, on a sound for more than six months, something's not going right. And that's giving Why me pause. Why were we taught that? I mean, seriously, I, apply that to anything else in your life. Yeah. Honest to goodness, if you went to a gym and you were trying to, I don't know, anything, put the fill in the blank. And after six months, it didn't work. Why would you do it for three and a half more years? Yeah. Before yeah. discharging and just quitting. And I got it. What breaks my heart. Okay. Now, okay. Don't tell anybody. But before I was a speech pathologist. I was a bartender forever, and I worked in restaurants. My mom owned a bar. Me watching men eat and drink is kind of a thing that I have done since I was probably too long. It wasn't legal is all I'm saying. But where I go with this, well, I'm sort of losing this, is that there's this persistence in just trying and trying and trying and then saying, you know what? That thing does not work. I work with a lot of adult men. Hell, I worked at the VA, the grumpiest men on the planet. <laughs> and when they look at you and say, yeah, darling, I tried that before. And they pat me on the ass and send me on my way so they can watch Judge Judy. It's because of that. It's because they tried for more than six months and just kept beating their head against a wall on a thing. Hmm. And when you do that to a little kid. Yeah. And I was the kid who would hit the speech therapist. I mean, I was that kid. Mm -hmm. I was the kid who got kicked out of speech therapy. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I have to say that uh, I, I'm telling you, I can probably pick out at least 10 interesting nuggets that you've said over the last year or so on Facebook. Oh, or, and, and the combinations, I'm just like, I, I wish, I know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but there's some things that you've said about apraxia, about stuttering. I'm like, where is this coming from? I mean, this is like stuff I haven't even heard, like from, you know, again, people like Robin Walsh or, you know, you know like Pam Marshalla. What's that? Right? You know, you know, this does not make people happy generally. No. Just saying stuff like that. 
Well, I have to say, I, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm used to the blowback by now uh, with the podcast. And, you know, I'm going to get blowback for this okay. one. And I'm just used to it. Um, so, <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, there was just, oh, God, I shouldn't. I'll bring it up anyway, because it's no, out there. Out. Let's get in trouble. So, We're yeah. Get in trouble. I, Let's get in trouble. Literally just, I think it was like a few <laughs> days ago. I ought to not look anymore, but Facebook discussion on the clinical forum uh, group. Again, and Sami's came up yet again. And let me ask you this. I know we're jumping all over the place. But... Ask me. No, dude, ask me anything. Okay, so here's, here's my thing. I think I've said this to Robin before. Don't you think it'd be a better starting point? Instead of arguing whether, quote, unquote, non-speech or motor exercises work, wouldn't it be better to sort of say, let's go back to the example I gave a four-year-old with a, with a, a vaulted palate and mouth breathing and just saying, what would you do with that? Show me the research. What research guides us to tell me what we should do? And what happens when, look at me, watch me, listen, and say what I say doesn't work? See, that's, okay, that's where I the ask- conversation should start. Okay. It's, it can start in two ways. I am so happy that there are hundreds of students, master's students in that study group. They are ruining their teacher's day every week doing exactly what you're do- asking. They are going, but what do we do with that? Okay. Now yeah. that is, that is where we are in the U S in other places in Brazil, where by the way, this is a doctoral study in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal, in Russia, in, in, in all over Europe, this is called physiology. When you learn anatomy, you then learn physiology Speech pathologists simply don't. You want to call it an insom? Don't insult me. It's called physiology. It's called function and dynamic motion. All speech pathologists should understand if you're going to tell a child to move their tongue, you should understand the anatomy and the physiology of the tongue before you do so. Mm, Yeah. I, 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 in, in other places, they're taught this and then they're taught articulation. Well, I think it, the other thing is, you know, language has taken such a, a precedence, even when, you know, phonology oh, is like, phonology yes. is like king, right? And everything is under is phonology. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I'm thinking it still, but here's, you know, the interesting thing is even when you're using quote evidence-based practice, you know, and you're using, let's say, you know, phonological cycles or whatever you're using multiple oppositions you i mean i love which i love yeah again i I still use these things when i need to but you said it yourself like again going back at one of your presentations yesterday or the other day um at the end of the day every speech sound is an acoustic event that requires stability right no so no matter what you're doing no matter how you're targeting something from a linguistic or yeah linguistics uh, standpoint at the end of the day it's a sound that has to be produced in a acceptable manner. So you have to understand how deeply in love I am with Noam Chomsky to understand how heartbroken I am over this. When I was a postback and I literally, I was a Noam Chomsky fangirl yeah. before I realized his impact on speech pathology as a postback, when they kept quoting him and we got to read him, I was in Nirvana language is a psycho-emotional experience. This is fantastic. This is this is what everything I've ever wanted. Okay, I'm right there. And truly, except for the fact that I couldn't give the Hodson test without losing half the pieces, I love 
everything about cycling. I love, I, I, I love teaching language. I really do. I, I had a linguistics minor. I think about how constructs of words all the time. Deglutinating is my new favorite word, and I highly recommend you use it in a sentence this week. <laughs> but I, I mean, I was there, except I kept raising my hand in class and saying, but I don't do that. But I don't do that. But I don't do that. And everything they kept teaching me to teach children was something that I actually didn't do in my own head. And I've always had a hard time with authority anyway, but just <laughs> accepting something without, I mean, really, I, I, I've been kicked out of a lot of very nice places. But I, I because I really want to understand why. Yeah. I, I'm the most, I'm a irritating three-year-old at heart. <laughs> Sounds like it. I know some of your comments, I swear to God, on Facebook. People should do take a look. At the, it's the Oramaya Functional Study everybody. Group. Take a look at this. <laughs> and you have, you probably have like what ten thousand members on that site now. It's getting close. Yeah, it, it's yeah. pretty. It's pretty intense. I I cannot you know, just believe it. Um, I just started another fight today with a bunch of lactation providers. So expect <laughs> a lot of women who are very nice with babies, but not nice with everybody else to come raining down on me tonight. So it's just, you know, what is it, Tuesday? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, after this, we're going to, you know, you'll get even more. <laughs> um. Well, hopefully you'll get some love off this. Because, okay, I want you shared a story earlier, and I'd like to share a story back. Yeah. Um, in 2015 or so, I was invited out to speak to a number of school districts in Alabama. And um, it was a real privilege. I, I don't get to tour the South very much. I don't get invited to school districts very much. And they had several uh, groups come together uh, to to provide for me. And it was Huntsville and it was pouring down rain. It was like, you just couldn't see anything but a highway and some fast food place. And I'm very flippant. I'm very sarcastic. I've had a couple of frontal lobe injuries, but that's not an excuse. I'm old. But um, I was being myself, and I was kind of making jokes about wasting time, wasting children's time, wasting clinical time, wasting motivation. And at the end of the two days that I was there to lecture, and I, I basically lectured, talked all through lunch, lectured, did the same the next day. This very wonderful woman came up to me, and, and it was like I'd stood in line for a very long time, and I could see her in the back, and and I just stayed and kept talking to folks. And when she came up to me, she began to cry, and she told me that she felt like she had wasted much of her career. <laughs> That's me. Except I had not made jokes to your face all day, and you hadn't paid money for it, and um, it it. I'm glad she was my last one of the day because we we had to hug it out and have a bunch of stuff. And and I do try to be a little more reserved and a little more respectful over the fact that we do the best we can with what we know. Mm -hmm. We really do. We are in this field to make a difference and make a change. And if somebody told us something that worked and we thought that it was valid and reliable, well, help, we do it. And um, I, I, uh, I hope I present and teach a little bit more solemnly about that because 
I, I wasn't in that moment. And I, man, I regretted it because I just thought, man, what did she think when she went home after seeing me? I didn't inspire her. I didn't make her feel good about her job because she was little I, weeks from quitting or retiring because it was the end of, you know, a, yeah. anyway, I, I, it, it devastated me because that this happened. Hmm. That's not my fault. It devastated me that um, I joked about a serious thing. Mm. So, so when, when you when you talk now, when you're giving uh, talks, are you sort of dialing back back that sort of? Uh... No, I'm just mad, but I'm not sarcastic. Okay. No, I don't. Di- I'm, yeah, I'm not dialing back. I'm okay. speeding up. We have no time to mess around. You work with special needs kids. They have limited therapy time, limited tolerance for you. They do. <laughs> make it. You have to make a difference. You cannot waste their time. No, I am not dialing back, but I'm not going to be flippant anymore. And I'm not going to joke anymore. Yeah. It's not funny mm-hmm. to me anymore. Uh, I feel this has been a disservice. Okay. So I don't think it's, yeah. Do you, okay, do you think things are changing? Do you think graduate programs are getting better? Do you think that with, uh, you know, with the whole podcast series that uh, Char Beauchart did, you know, the oh, 20... Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. There's there's people think that there's a change afoot, but like I said, then okay. again, on on Facebook the other day, you would think that no, that you know, the the establishment is still, you know. I come from a, a long line of very stubborn people. And um I don't know how generous I would be if I had to admit that I had been wrong for 40 years in the way I had been advising students and possibly mishandling patients. I don't know how I deal with that. Since I'm not engaged in this, I can be bold like this, but you know what? Parents are ticked. I have moms that feel litigious. They've spent money with misdiagnoses, wasting years in therapy. I don't know if I was at the top of this food chain, if I would be in a big hurry to say, oops, we were wrong. No, I'm not. So I can sit in the corner and I can poke the bear. That gets to be my job. And I honestly regret, I didn't get on Facebook until 2015 because I thought it was stupid. (laughs) Man, did I waste time. I could have changed the world. Well, my God, with this uh, group you've, it seems to be all organic too. It's not like you're going out taking out Facebook ads to for people to join. Dude, I don't leave the study group. Have you seen me anywhere else? No, I mean, yeah, you seem to be pretty. I mean, it's like a full time job almost. Managing. Oh, it's a classroom. It's a classroom without a doubt. Yeah. Twenty seven medical profession, medical and dental professions. I think there's seventy five countries represented now. Um, everybody thinks I'm mad at them and bashing them, so there's always somebody to fight with. Um. <laughs> Everybody views the face differently, which is so exciting. Yeah. Um, people do not know what speech pathologists do. Yeah. They don't even know there's a specialty called dysphagia. <laughs> there's dentists who lecture on swallowing who have never read a paper on swallowing. Really? Except for a biomechanical paper yeah. from some engineer in the 1980s, I swear. 
When I lecture around the world, doctors will say, well, I learned about this swallowing theory from some guy in some engine. I'm like, what are you, what the frick? Have you not ever watched men eat at a bar? Because I have. (laughs) Whatever you're saying is nuts. So it's, it's fantastic. And and yes, it's organic and I'm glad it's all coming together. And I'm super happy that you're participating. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the world's changing. I'd like to think that it is. Mm-hmm. I'm glad students are in the study group because that's, I think, where it's really going to come from, consumers and students, because I don't know that academic faculty are necessarily motivated. You all, oh, you made a good point. I thought a lot about um, these days, just about how difficult it must be to admit that maybe you are wrong or maybe that you've neglected. I mean, you know, again, if you spent the most, most of your career putting down in psalms and psalms i mean it would be very difficult to walk that back i mean i yeah so okay i mean it's hard for me it's hard for me to walk back you know the the preconceived notions that i had five six years ago okay let's spend 30 seconds walking it back a jaw slide is indicative of a mandible that is not stable it's not funny and it's not a joke. It hurts and can be a surgical repair in adulthood. A tongue wag is a diagnostic tool to know differential t- uh, muscle movement from the tongue to the mandible. It has meaning and function whether the tongue comes outside the mouth to clean food ever. Playing around in your mouth is lingual range of motion and every human being deserves normal range motion of every muscle in their body and if they don't have it they have to pay to get it fixed mm-hmm. i don't know if that was 30 seconds maybe it was 20 yeah i can keep going you're in you the ballpark you're in the ballpark so Thank you, sir. <laughs> that's what i do in elevators when i think they're going to run away really fast and they start hitting buttons <laughs> that's what i start doing get it in yeah <laughs> so okay i want to circle back again it was uh joanne was that her name uh, Smith Peter. Okay. One of the few speech pathologists who's ever published in a peer-reviewed orthodontic journal with David Cavell years ago about how myofunctional therapy stabilized orthodontic outcomes. So you learned from her. And yes. you first met her when you were still uh, a graduate student, correct? Or is this uh I think your... I was just finishing. I think I'd just taken my praxis and I was I was starting my CF. I was still on campus, so I hadn't graduated yet. Yes. Okay. So what I want to know, because I want to emulate as best I can the things that you've learned. And I want to learn what I want to know what you know. So my question is, how did you learn so much so quickly? Where you know, I asked Robin this and she said, just <laughs> go out there and take everything you can. And I want to know, like, you're, you're, I mean, obviously you don't know what I don't know, which is, you know, considerable, but I mean, like, seriously, if, if someone, someone like me, you know, they've been out of the field some time, I don't want to state my age. You're a baby. You're a, I can see it from here. (laughs) No. (laughs) But, you know, what do you do when you're an old dog and you want to learn the new tricks? What, you know, what, what's the, what's the. What's the path? I mean, you know, I can't go back to school. If I, I always say, I've been saying this a lot. If I had my druthers, I would take, I would ask my school district, give me a year off if I could afford this. And I would literally just go across the country and just knock on people like you and knock on your door and say, can I just watch you? 
You know, in Britain, they actually do that. It's called the Winston Churchill Fellowship. And Kay Rogers this year was given foundation money to travel the world. She came to the United States and met with a number of leaders in the field of oral myofunction to go back and teach speech pathologists in England. There you go. So wouldn't that be lovely if the United States could do something like that? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I have a problem. I do like continuing education stuff. I get, I've, I've, I haven't gotten double digits in my ACE awards, but I did get my ninth one. So I don't know what 70 times nine is because I'm a speech pathologist. <laughs> but um, I, I do a lot of continuing education. But I got to tell you, I say this a lot. Oral myofunction is the nexus of craniofacial structure, swallowing, and communication. It's just where it happens. And any continuing education you get in structure or in function or in manipulating the behavior of your patients has real value because you'll meet that patient where that thing doesn't work, but that thing does in the field of speech speech pathology, how lucky we are that we can reach into elderly care and into early intervention care, you know, to draw on these things because oral function does continue along a continuum of the lifespan. So Mm -hmm. your type of education may look very different than somebody who's in a sniff that is all of a sudden seeing, because, you know, oral motor in dysphagia research is called exercise-based therapy because they can't call it oral motor mm. because the you know the gods will rain down on them yeah. but exercise-based therapy is taken over dysphagia therapy so if you're in a different environment what you're seeking is going to look a little different than if you're working with toddlers than if you're in a life skills class mm-hmm. so um i'm i'm happy that there's so much advanced, highly rated education from just really qualified folks. What I guess I'd want to say is Americans need to be looking at what's happening in South America. Mm -hmm. The Brazilians are 20 years ahead of every single American speech pathologist. I am an idiot compared to the slowest speech pathologist in South America. I mean, I just, I I can't tell you that, I mean, how much admiration I have for the folks in Brazil and Peru um, who have been working so diligently to move this research forward. They write textbooks on this. Yeah. I am literally making it up as I go along half the time, only because I cannot speak Spanish. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you're asking me, I'm thinking, God, I need to learn how to read and and maybe buy a book. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, who knows what I don't know? Mm -hmm. So I I think it's an exciting time to be a speech pathologist. It it is. It is. And I I really, I have to say that for the listen, I have a lot of uh, younger listeners, uh, graduate students, undergraduates, and I've had a lot of people, as, as many detractors as I've had for covering issues like this. I've had a lot of young people email me saying, thank you for telling me this now, or for, you know, for having Robin on and talking about these things so that I can make the right decisions now versus five, 10 years from now. Okay. You know, um, I'm a big fan of people I disagree with presenting publicly. That's what evidence base is. 
I have to present my evidence for you to trash me. But if you silence me, you don't get to see my evidence base. Mm. And there's a huge oral motor evidence base. It's been silenced, but it exists. Oh, which, yeah. I was going to, I don't want to forget to mention this, that you have an interesting Dropbox. Um, I have 17 interesting Dropboxes and the links are publicly available to anyone who wants them. Yeah. And I would recommend, I'll, I'll link to your links. Um, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, but I want to tell people that there's a lot of stuff out there. Just a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously we're not talking about direct, um, you know, we took the bite blocks from talk tools and, but there's so much on the jaw and and swallowing function and, you know, there's stuff out there. Can I just go through the drop boxes real quickly? Yeah. Yeah. There's 17. There's one for articulation, breathing, chewing, craniofacial abstracts, feeding and swallowing, oral frenula, lactation, those specific to mouth breathing and asthma, orthodontics and occlusion, oral habits, obstructive sleep apnea and sleep disorder breathing, body posture, a whole drop box just for protocols and measurements, one on surgery for the face, one on therapy alone, one for temporomandibular disorders, and one for voice. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's And again, lot. the it's links can be shared with anyone. I don't want to keep those proprietary. Yeah. I want those out there. Yeah, yeah, uh, quite. It's, yeah, I haven't even begun to, scr- begun to scratch the surface of what's in your uh, Dropbox. But uh, yeah, a lot of good reading there. Um I People wanted have to... gotten their master's and doctoral thesis off the folders in the Dropbox. That's is that right? Probably the biggest compliment a human being could give me is that they got their PhD trolling. I mean, not trolling. What do you call it? Uh, going through the Dropboxes yeah. and using folders for their doctoral thesis. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. I, I couldn't ask for anything better. Okay. So one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about tonight. and um, Yes is my role in the schools. Now, I'm a little I'm a little confused because what you seem to be advocating is you want to take the burden off of speech pathologists working in the schools to do more language-based stuff and to take these complex cases and refer out to the medical-based speech pathologists and other professionals related ENTs, orthodontists, etc. Am I first of all am I am I encapsulating that in a fair way? I think academic speech pathologists should focus on academic goals that are relevant to a child's IEP. And I think medical-based speech pathologists should take on the medical-based goals that are not academically relevant and can't be met in that environment. And it is the multidisciplinary model that should be that example. Mm -hmm. You know, you would do this for, if you saw a fistula in a child's mouth, you would not therapize that child, you'd refer them out. So if let me child had needed glasses, you'd refer them out. Right. So I want to get back to let's talk about my I'm going to be selfish here. Let me yes, talk about my selfish. particular program, my educational life skills program that I work in. And let's again bring up a kid, uh kindergartner with a mouth breather, vaulted palate, um, speaking at the C V level, you know, can't no final consonants, uh, limited sounds, mostly stops, no continue, you know, no uh, fricatives. Okay. Do I immediately just say, 
do I merely just I just work on the language and say, okay, we need to work on these other aspects. Have you consulted X, Y, and Z? So do I, am I going to work on those in your world? Am I going to work on those speech sounds or am I going to just refer everything out and just ask them to go to private? Because there's a whole other set of issues then I'd have to address. Yes, okay. So, okay, I wanna, I'm going to answer this in two ways because I want to talk about my treatment hierarchy because I can never leave it. And then I want to talk about how you incorporate it. Okay. If you start at the end, what I consider the end of the treatment hierarchy, which is communication, you were going, you're going to be there a long time. Breathing dominates, then swallowing, chewing, oral postures, and then communication for me. Okay. You started by describing this child's breathing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So everything else to me makes sense. Okay. You can't stop what you're doing because this kid needs his language, but you must state out loud what your prognosis is based on factors that you can and cannot control. What if this kid had a cleft palate and what was the family couldn't afford surgery? How, what would your eval look like? Yeah. Well, you saw these things. Okay, now what's your treatment prognosis? Well, okay, this child's not going to get surgery, so my, my prognosis is going to look like this. Yeah. Okay, And that's real life. So okay, it, I've had children. It's Oregon. It's the West Coast. There's parents here who do not intervene. I've had children sporting four-plus tonsils for more than a year at a time, and I will keep working with that child, making note every session of the breathing, the swallowing. If I do feeding with that child, what I see, I'm never letting it go because I'm doing my due diligence in case this ever comes back. Linda did her job. Mm -hmm. Linda told that family to seek ear, 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 nose, and throat. Linda told that family to go seek early intervention orthodontics. Linda talked in her evaluation about the limitations to meeting her objectives because I'm not going to fail in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And Linda talked about what could happen with and without different intervention because the deal, I mean, things magically can happen when your molars fit together properly. I joke about this, probably shouldn't anymore (laughs) because I stopped being flippant, but. I can't count on two hands how many speech pathologists from schools have called me to tell me their student magically got SHCH and J a week after the palate expander went in. Mm. Well, if you were taught in graduate school, by the way, Billy can't make an SHCH or J unless his back teeth fit together. Would you have taken that on as a, as a, as a target with no. this child when you see an obvious crossbite? Well, if you got to work on other stuff, go work on that other stuff while mom starts visiting orthodontists or mm-hmm. whatever. But if they can't make SH, okay, I had this conversation online with a patient today. Mm-hmm. We're doing online therapy, my second favorite way to do therapy. <laughs> and and this child's in crossbite. His crossbite is complete. He has mid-face hypoplasia and he can't make an F, among other things. And I said, dude. You can't do it. Your face does not fit. He goes, okay. <laughs> do you know how much fun that was? <laughs> and I said, when this is finished and you go to see Dr. Baker, he's going to fix that. You know what the kid mm-hmm. said? What? Okay. How old is he? He's like six. <laughs> I mean, with the, with, with, he's like, it's not your, I told him it's not your fault. He's yeah. good with that. I said, we're not going to work on it. He's good with that. 
And I say, when you get to the orthodontist, they're going to fix that. And he's good with that. Mm -hmm. We have other goals, by the way. I can keep busy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your little language guy, he needs to stop hitting that kid next to him when they take the toy. (laughs) They need to learn negotiating and turn-taking skills. And he might need to learn to blow his nose while he's with you. Mm-hmm. Maybe his mouth will shut a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you teach him humming during snack time. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I always do the national anthem, but I do. <laughs> but it's a good humming song. But so, I mean, you can do other things to encourage this, but you better address it. So I think what, what I'm hearing you saying is that you, you, there can be a role, but you just need to know what it is that you're getting into and who to, who to call. But, you know, I'll tell you the other thing is I live in Chicago. You know, we're talking, <gasps> what? Eight... I will introduce you to all my favorite people. Oh, please do. Because one of the things that it, I think came up when, again, during talking about, about referring out, is like, I don't even know, like, who, who's really good at structure and function in my area? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you, like, who would I refer out to? The greatest joy of my study group on Facebook um, is that people use it to do exactly what you're asking, to build teams and talent in their area. Um, I was in Toronto a few years ago presenting at a, at a tongue-tie conference, and oh, two or three different people over the course of the weekend walked up and said, you know, we've used your study group to start our own study group. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. When I taught in Toronto a few years later, the whole course just made a group and went off on themselves. So, so you know, that's I want that study group to be exactly this. I want you to find three or four ear, nose, and throat doctors, a couple of maxillofacial surgeons, a whole bunch of pediatric dentists, and a few orthodontists. I want people around the school where you work to know who you are, mm-hmm. and, and I want your caseload to reflect your talent. And I want the kids who need airway help, maybe, and and, and here's the, I know it's hard to get a kid off a caseload and back on again. I'm sorry, that's stupid. Not my problem. (laughs) Because it shouldn't be hard. If you know that Billy's got tonsils and a tongue tie, and maybe that's why he's in speech, and you discharge him, he should slide right back on if he gets his tonsils fixed and his tongue tie fixed, because he may need you, and now you can teach him something. For me, I have to say, like, I would prefer, I would love to get at a point in my career where I, I mean, not, not that I don't have to refer out, but where I could be part of that team. I, I don't know how, I'm sure it'd be somewhat uh, odd in a sense, but I, I mean, I started my career as a medical speech pathologist myself, and I almost I want to sort of uh, occupy the space where I can do those things in the school setting. I mean, you know, like let's take you know Robin. You and Robin talked about this though. Yeah, she she Robin does this. Yeah. yeah, and so you know I I would like to be a part of that. I would like to be better and, and start addressing the feeding stuff because I mean I'll be the first to admit that for I've been in my district for ten years now, and what have I worked on most? Language. I'm big in AAC. That's a big part of what I do. And, you know, again, my my thing has been I've sort of neglected this whole other aspect, the speech stuff. And guess what? It's the number one parent. Parents ask that at, at every IEP. 
I want them to talk. I want them to, I want a speech to improve. It's not that they don't, they don't appreciate the AAC stuff. They do. But I, again, you know, I have to go back and say, you know, it, they're, they're the cases where I've just felt like there's no way I can't, I can't do it. Just it's, it's far and far, you know, above what I can do. And then there's the cases where I have tried. And I mean, you've brought this up and I don't know other speakers have too, where you work on the sound and of course they can sort of generalize it in the, in the treatment room. They go out and it's like, boom, the jaw goes right back to what it was doing before. And they can't, there's no connected speech, you know, like, okay, I just worked on the T or whatever, you know, whatever alveolar, alveolar placement. And they had the stability to get the sound in the treatment room and they leave and it's gone. And you know, that's, that's my existence. And that's, that's other people's existence too. It's not just me. I can tell you that. Absolutely not. Okay, now I want to. Okay, I want to answer this on two levels. There is the reality of compensation versus skill building. There is a real reality in rehab that we don't get. I don't think I learned this when I was a, a very young clinician that I wasn't going to fix everybody. Mm-hmm. That I was only going to fix some of the people, and I was only going to partially fix the others. I wish somebody had said, oh, by the way, when you meet a kid, you might as well tell him 75% of this will be skill and 25% of this. We're just going to cover up what's going on and we're going to call it compensation. I do that now. If I've got, I mean, uh, one of my favorite patients of all time is, is a, it was a girl with cerebral palsy. She, I mean, and, and really, I hope she becomes a comedian because one of the funniest women I've ever met in my life. But she had a very good sense of herself. Okay, she knew where she was in space and time. And I was not gentle with her. We laughed a lot over what she was capable and not capable of doing in any moment. But that if you if you have a good sense of where you are with things, I I, by the way, I love basketball. I am truly one of the world's worst basketball players. Um, I, I, I thought I had to be good at something to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm over that now, by the way. I don't have to be good at something to do it. I can also do it to enjoy it. I also can compensate because when I play basketball, I move the net down and I'm awesome. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so, but I think if we're more honest with kids about what we're actually doing with them, they'd be more receptive. And so if you're working with a kid that you're really teaching a compensation to, say so. This kids with cleft palate really make you be honest because if they're a couple of years from a surgery, or better yet, they get a surgery to close the fistulas in their hard palate, then they go see the orthodontist who reopens all the fistulas. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a conversation that you got to have, and it's it's the one. Do you remember when your mother told you that you needed to do a thing so you'd have a good job? Da da da. And you remember that feeling inside when you're like, oh. That's the feeling children have the second a speech pathologist starts helping them with some compensation for the future. Mm -hmm. But it's real. And you're not going to be good at everything. If you were my patient today, I could fix things on you, but the rest would just be compensation. If you're not going to get that second set of braces or have that surgery or get that deviated septum fixed. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it what it is. Yeah. And, um, there's something about it that frees the clinician too. Yeah. Like, you know, when, when my, when my girl with cerebral palsy said, you know, I'm not going to get this. And I'm like, you're not, <laughs> it was a different place. It's like, okay, well let's see what we can get. Yeah. 
So in school speech pathology, there's there's you have the confines of this IEP or this list of things that you have to do. And if you lose my hearing, I have to take these off and we have to go with the regular microphone. Oh yeah, okay. But but there is this conversation of other responsibilities that you have. I don't do augmentative communication, but if I see a need, I, I have at least the skill set to screen and the obligation to refer. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't understand, but I know just enough to say, you know what, you need to go back and talk to your pediatrician about this and this. I'm going to put it in the report. Um, I'm not, I have never actually seen a school district, uh, policy written down that says you can't refer out, but 100% of school speech pathologists were told this terrible story, probably with a flashlight right under their chin. Don't refer out. <laughs> and so and they're all terrified, so they don't do it, yeah. but I don't think that's actually a real thing. Well, I mean, the one, I, I don't know if you're alluding to this, but one of the reasons I think that there's such a fear of of referring out, of course, is because the school then becomes on the hook, right? That's that's the thought that goes into it, right? Um, but no, I mean, I think you brought this up, actually, I think, in your talk. I mean, it's really, it's how you bring it up. If there's something that's medically necessary, then, you know, I don't see the reason why the school has to pay for that. I mean, I but I can see that. And, you know. it, and it okay now here's here's the crazy here's here's the dangly thing that gets mm-hmm. in between is hearing aids and let's pretend i never said those words because you wouldn't eyeglasses is the easy one but hearing aids sometimes stay at school they're the medical device that's sometimes the academic device so i am i let's pretend we never had that part of the conversation but truly if you saw a fistula in a kid that's not an academic issue but it does impact the, the the speech. If you have a child who's falling asleep at their desk, they may have a medical problem. That's not, it, it impacts academics, but it's not something the teacher can solve. Right. But if the kid has narcolepsy, maybe we should go see somebody. So I think, I think speech, I think schools should be almost excited that they have a professional that can actually do early intervention and actually reduce caseloads to things that are appropriate. And by the way, I'm not a language pathologist. I admire people who teach language. I'm a hard mechanic speech girl. I miss the subtleties of language because I don't do it anymore. I'm not a language pathologist and I, I miss it a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. I can do developmental. I, I can pretend I do developmental language with <laughs> kids who are barely, you know, disordered, but, or let's just call them delayed. Cause who am I fooling? Um, but it is a specialty within a vast field. And you should be proud to say, you know what? There's other parts of speech pathology that have nothing to do with academics per se, but impact academics when they work well and work poorly. Yeah. And it's your mouth, you know, where the talking part comes out. There's a number of my kids, you know, I work at my district, very mixed economically, but a lot of low income I know one of the issues that I've dealt with is a number, I, I remember I'm thinking of actually, as we've been talking about one of the kids on my caseload who I had actually several times, uh, I, I brought it up, I stopped bringing it up about the fact that he needed to see some medical professionals to uh, address his airway. Um, velopharyngeal insufficiency, I mean, it, clear as day. 
the parents, I think, working their tails off. They're just trying to get through. They're just trying to get through the week. But I've sort of learned over the last few years, it's like, it, it ain't going to happen. So now, I mean, talking about compensation, I'm I'm literally trying to work on some basic compensatory strategies because I can't work with a whole lot here. There's not a okay. whole lot I can do. Does this child have daytime behavior problems? Not too bad, actually. Good. Yeah. Does this child have an orthodontic need? Yes. Okay. Do you know if this child has sleep problems? Uh, they've never told me before. Okay. Uh, parents have never told us. He, he okay. generally he's the, he's pretty wakeful during the day. He's a pretty energetic. Why kid. is he in your Why is he in your classroom? Uh, educational life skills. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Yeah. Okay. There. There. That. That is our primary diagnosis. Then. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Okay. Well, then everything else sort of falls in. But yeah. Let yeah. me tell you a little thing about that soft palate and velopharyngeal issues. One gem, if I were to give every speech pathologist the thing that I wish I'd been taught in graduate school, if I had to narrow it to one, I've looked in thousands of mouths. And when I was a young clinician, I would often see soft palates that just didn't move. And I didn't know what I was looking at. It never occurred to me that enlarged adenoids will stop a soft palate from moving and an orthodontic cephalometric will rule that out immediately. I treated that for years and failed because it was structural and I treated it as first behavioral and then muscular. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So large adenoids press on the velum because children don't have velopharyngeal closure. They have veloadenoidal closure. Mm, see, again, I learned something new today. That's it, man. You don't see ah, 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 ah. You don't get ah, 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 ah. Mm-hmm. You don't get a lift. Ask that family, has your child been to an orthodontist yet? Because I'd like to see that side x-ray. And so there's there's consequences to stuff. But I ask different, like, you know, is this a problem? Yes or no. Is this a problem? Yes or no. Well, you know these things are correlated, right? Yeah. I'm sure you, I, I can only imagine what your intake uh, paperwork looks like. Oh, it's extensive and I bore everybody. Interesting. It's online, by the way. You can get it online if you want it at my website at denofrioslp.com. I share everything because I want to teach folks to do what I do better than what I do it. Yeah. I, I feel I'm scratching the surface and I hope new speech pathologists take this and, and make it three times better than anything I ever imagined. So you, okay, back up again. So you've, only been on Facebook now for a few years, right? October 2015, I got on. Okay, yeah. so more than about five years. Yeah. Um, how long have you been presenting, like with Speech Therapy PD, traveling around the country? Is that somewhat new too yeah. for you? I mean, last few uh, years? Or? I started presenting, uh, my, one of my very first presentations was on Tongue Tie. Huh. Um, I did a Differential diagnosis. Oh, wait, I have to take these out real quick. Okay, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I started presenting right out of graduate school because I think the year I graduated or the year after I graduated, I became president of the Oregon Speech Pathology Academy, which was like a little networking group. Mm -hmm. And I just started presenting there, but I was presenting on tongue tie like in 2005. 
Uh, some of those presentations are still online. I was doing differential diagnosis of OMD to our articulation for Pacific University in a couple of places, probably in 2008. I present on topics that make me angry. <laughs> yeah. Really, because I, I, that's I, I, I do because it's like this is making me mad. So I go and I yell about it, and then I feel better, and then I go back to my hole. And when I get mad about something else, I come out. So I, I've, I've, I've been mad a lot. All right, so I have to ask because I know you were at ASHA last year, 2019's con- uh, yeah. convention, correct? Yes. How many uh, topics did you present on there? I only did two last year. Two. Um, I, 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 I presented on the topic of my paper, and then I did a literature review of oral myofunctional therapy and the research on therapy. Okay. So given that it's ASHA, I just have to ask, were there any trollers in the audience? I mean... No, that's not... They don't do that there. It's very funny. Um, people, uh, they, uh, people will leave. Girls are... Okay. You know, ASHA's dominantly women. Yeah. Um, this is no dental conference, okay? I like going to medical and dental conferences. Those boys will actually yell from the audience sometimes. But speech pathologists don't really roll like that. They'll just get up and leave if they don't like what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you kind of gauge how things are going by how full the, how full the room is at the end. Ah, okay. okay? Um, and I often try to start my presentations with really inflammatory statements. So if you're <laughs> going to leave your... Like in 2017, I started my presentation on dysphagia and OMD by saying, I know dental hygienists who do better speech pathology than speech pathologists. Ooh. And I figured if you were going to stay after that, you were going to stay. Yeah. And um, no one left. And I actually ended up kind of going over and staying for questions for a long time. <laughs> I like starting my lectures. If you've seen them, I always start my lectures with contentions. Yeah, yeah. I would say like I, I, they grab your attention, definitely. I I have ideas and thoughts, and that's why I'm presenting. Now I'm not saying I'm right. I love being wrong. Come fight with me. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm there. So so this so this last Asha uh, convention, where did you? What was the reception like? Just overall. Um, the first lecture I did was on my paper, which was oral dysfunction as a cause of malocclusion, and the room it, it was a smaller room and well packed, which was nice. Um, and, and well-received people are very excited about learning about oral function and mostly for themselves. Speech pathologists pay attention to themselves better than almost, except for dentists and a few other people that work in the mouth. So when I'm talking about oral dysmorphology and oral dysfunction, they resonate because they're paying attention to their own issues. You know, obstructive sleep apnea is common with people. So the fact that half the audience had sleep apnea, I mean, was, you know, not lost on me. The second lecture was the literature review. And frankly, unless you really like a good literature review, you know, it's not your thing. They did put me in one of the furthest rooms away from everything else. And it was so huge that anybody that was there looked like they weren't there. So, uh, and I was in a corner and the, the screen was like entirely on the other side of the room. Oh God. So, uh, I did a lit review, you know? Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. So, um, I want to be respectful of your time. No tomatoes. That's that's the, that's what, that's the important thing. Um, couple things. 
fun. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for chasing me down. I'm really no, glad. I'd love to do a round two sometime with you. I mean, you're someone I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep a, at you. Um, <laughs> I have to. Questions. I'm sure there will be after this one. We'll do. Oh, we'll do there, there's I'm definitely going to be more. At a more advanced level. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to, is it my, okay. If, if someone asked you, what do most uh, SLPs get wrong about OMD? About about just about the the practice of an or myofunctional therapist. What do you think a big misconception is? Because I've heard what I from I'm not an of course I'm not trained, but I have a I have an idea, and the idea is that I think the misconception is that SLPs think that it's teaching them a bunch of exercises. That seems to be one of the consensuses that I've get from that I've heard from other. Or am I a functional people? Do you think that's onto something, or is that you? You really you okay? I okay. I'm gonna make fun of you now because you're like Go ahead. I'm respectful of your time, and now I'm gonna say the things <laughs> that you fight about with everyone for hours on end. <laughs> you you have if you're in the study group, dude. You know how I feel about exercises. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually don't know to answer your question initially. I don't know how people who don't know about myofunctional therapy feel about it right now. My world doesn't touch those folks. My world is the people that are like, Oh my gosh, where has this been? Tell me more. So I don't actually encounter too much. Oh, what is that now? Because it's just not where I am. I've, I've moved on, frankly. I I don't care if you believe that oral motor impacts speech. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I've moved on. I've got so many more important things than communication because we have kids who are being put on heavy medications. We have kids with obstructive sleep apnea. We have kids with acquired cranial facial dysmorphology that's not being properly addressed. Speech schmeech is where mm. I'm with that. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's a bit of this where I don't know how people perceive it. That said, if they know anything about it, they know it's exercises. Mm, yeah. And if I get one question, hey, Linda, can you send me some exercises for tongue thrust? And I always go, do you do this to doctors at parties? <laughs> because what you're asking me for can you throw a couple of strategies at a problem for which I have no goals or objectives? And my answer is no. This is like when my, you know, if you ask my mother, can I use your bathroom? She just look at you and say no. And then laugh. (laughs) Don't, when you ask somebody for such a low level solution, it tells me right away where their thinking is. Yeah. They're throwing things at a child trying to make something work. Yeah. Can you give me some more things to throw at them? Can you give me some exercises for those lifts? Yeah, yeah. I get asked, and I feel like just going, can they breathe? Because no exercise matters if they can't, okay? I, I mean, I, a conversation I had with a doctor today, I said, can your son blow his nose? And he went, no. I said, stop putting retainers in his mouth and teach him to blow a snot rocket. You know, it's it's the theme of my entire career. You have to work as a clinician. You have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Ah! 
That's, yeah. uh, I remember putting that in my graduate application that I didn't want to just be a therapist. I wanted to be a clinician, someone who can learn to think, um, what's the word? Pathologist. A diagnostician, exactly. Language pathologist. I lost a bar bet when I graduated college because I couldn't tell anybody why we were called that. <laughs> Do you know how embarrassing that is? <laughs> oh my gosh, I keep that looking back. One, I shouldn't have been in that bar. They didn't know it's, I could have made something up. They wouldn't have known. But yeah. I never knew why I was called a speech language pathologist. This is why. This is why. A diagnostic, diagnostic aspect. Yes. But therapists. We don't take a plan and apply it from a doctor's order. Mm, We do dynamic assessment. We modify our objectives and strategies based on patient need. We're flexible. We have a wide scope of practice, but we are speech pathologists. And if I speech therapists need to look at what they're doing and if they fail, which happens every day to me, you go, all right, what happened there? Reevaluate. Yeah, let's go back, retool, do it again. And I don't care if somebody on some conference said, "Don't do this thing because it doesn't have an evidence base." Mm-hmm. And by the way, Charbo Sharp pretty much shut that whole thing down because the lack of evidence base is the lack of evidence base. Yeah, there's been a single <laughs> randomized controlled trial by a single American university in the 40 years they've been saying it doesn't exist to prove it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a fascinating podcast series, and I've been saying to anybody who listen, take a listen to that if you have a chance. She's the nicest lady. Yeah. Oh, she seems it. I've never met her, but yeah, just seems like a very uh, down earth person. Asha. What's that? She's at every Asha, and I'll tell you what, um, Charbo Shart is one of my. She's one of my reasons for living. Charbo Shart, Pam Marshalla, Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson. Joanne Smith Peter in her way too were shut down by the powers that be for trying to stand up for oral structure oral structure and oral function mm-hmm. and their careers hurt because of it yeah. they were shut out of prestigious environments because of it and anything that I do is because I stand on the shoulders of giants yeah People Charbo Shart is and Diane Barr and forgive me for get, leaving out any of them. Yeah, is the only reason that anybody listens to me is because of everything they did first. I want to end tonight by talking about your latest CEU offering. I believe you just launched a I new know, course. Yeah, you're on Vimeo. I have a five-part lecture series, the mm-hmm. Oral Facial Myofunctional Disorder Lecture Series. I forgot to plug my thing. Yeah, you got to plug I'm it. Doing a thing, and I didn't know I was supposed to plug a thing. Is it live right now? Is it available, or is it uh, um, coming soon? The first lecture is uh, released. So the mm-hmm. first lecture is how oral motor impacts articulation and language development. Mm-hmm. Basically, what every speech pathologist needs to know. The second lecture will be released in June. It's how or it's my paper, uh, how oral dysfunction causes malocclusion and suboptimal facial development. Mm-hmm. Basically, what every dentist needs to know. Mm. The third and fourth lectures are breaking down the diagnostic process for oral myofunctional disorder. The fourth one is breaking down the treatment process. These are six hours lectures each, mm-hmm. and then the fifth course is called coordinating 
orthodontics, oral surgery, and um, OSA with oral myofunctional uh, therapy. So it's how to coordinate care with orthodontics, ENT, and speech pathology. Okay. So for someone like me, all all those courses, even that last one you were mentioning, coordinating, it's not going to be way over my head if I've not if I if I haven't taken if I haven't been certified as an orofacial myologist, I I'm can, not certified as an orofacial myologist. You're not? No. Interesting. I'm certified as a speech language pathologist, sir. Okay. I have a certificate of clinical competence. In All right. The world. So I've got you know this is uh, this is good. No, I'm going to be home this summer. I'm not going anywhere. Much All of right. us, much of the world isn't. And they are a live course. If we ever get out from underneath this, I also <laughs> am doing this as a live course too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I imagine some of it might be over your head, but I think that's okay. Oh no, yeah, I'll jump in anyway. I love going to, to cleft palate courses and surgical courses where I, I get about two thirds of it. Yeah. I think that's okay. But what I want folks to know is there's a real evidence base behind this. There's a real scientific clinical base behind this. Mm-hmm. There's a real clinical community behind this. And you may be doing more than you know. Hmm. You may have more of an awareness and more of a sensitivity and apply things better than you actually know. And so hopefully what it does, it breaks down that process. And by the way, I do teach exercises in those courses, but I don't focus on exercises in those courses. Many other people already do. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of theoretical stuff, it sounds like. Uh, I try, I'm, I'm, I like to do my presentations backwards and save theory for the end. I like getting stuff out of the way and teaching folks how to do it first, but I don't get lost in the weeds. I like objectives. If I had to pick my place in therapy, I love objectives is I want five strategies for every objective I've got, Hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the the courses, I just want to make sure they're on Vimeo. Is it, is that only on Vimeo or are they other places as well? They're only on Vimeo. Uh, and I actually found old courses of mine on Vimeo that I am not selling, but other people hmm. are. Is that right? So, uh, yeah. So huh. there's actually there's uh, an a old lecture on cranial facial disorders and tongue tie hmm. from a conference I did in Toronto. That's on Vimeo. Uh, there's some old stuff from Speech Therapy PD that's free that's on Vimeo. Okay. And uh, there's a couple uh, big conferences that I attended. Some of my lectures are individually for sale on Vimeo. So that's kind of fun. Okay. All right. Well, I uh, we covered a lot, but yet, of course, I knew there would be way more out there that uh, some future talk we'll have to uh, get to. But well, thank you. No, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate it. I was, uh, when I first, I think, sent out an email, I'm like, she's going to think I'm like this crazy guy, like hunting her I down. Do. You know, I come off, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not doing enough for you. I got to hang on the show. <laughs> it was, I, I, it was um, a lot of folks sometimes just sort of reach out, but they're fishing. Okay. And so I don't take, you know, it's like, oh, you want to do a thing? I'm like, yeah, that's that, that. and, yeah. and so uh, I'm sorry. It, no, this was really great. I'm sorry we didn't meet in Chicago because, man, yeah. that was a presentation from hell and a story for a whole other day. Oh, really? Oh, I'll have to hear about oh, sometime. Yeah. You name what <laughs> happened wrong, it happened. At least five horrible things. I ended up presenting sitting on the stage with nothing behind me for two hours. Oh, my God. Oof. Yeah. So another day we'll do that one. But another it, was day. it was an absolute hit. I loved uh, coming to Chicago for Isha.
Okay, thank you, Linda D'Onofrio, for taking the time to be on the show today. I'm sure we'll get a lot of interesting feedback about this show, and I hope to have you on another time. I wanted to circle back to a case I brought up earlier in today's discussion, and then a case involves, uh, say, a young student with a uh, mouth-breathing, low facial tone, and narrow palate. Perhaps more importantly, this theoretical child has multiple speech sound errors. Now, the question is, what do you do? Is it possible to ignore the underlying structural impediments and just work on sound production? What do you do when you've done that for two years and little to nothing has changed? See, this is where the discussion should start when talking about this oral motor debate. What do you think? Let me know. Jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. I thank you for all the feedback. Good and bad, I learned from it all. Stay safe, and I will see you next time.